Good morning, Bentonville Church. It's great to be together this morning. Uh, <clears throat> Happy New Year. I wasn't able to be with you last week, but it's great to be able to be here and to worship with you this morning. I want you to say this word with me. Maranatha. I know that's not a word we're used to, but if you can, Maranatha. And it, it's an Aramaic expression that means, Come, our Lord. And this was the prayer of the earliest church. It was a, a, an expression that was handed down through the ages. We actually find it in the pages of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 22, and it's translated, Come, O Lord. <clears throat> and in the earliest writings of the church, we find this phrase being used. And then we find it echoed in places like Revelation, where they say, Come, Lord Jesus. But it was a prayer. It was a longing of the heart that God would make his presence known to his people, that he would come and set things right. Come, our Lord. And that's a prayer that's been on my heart a lot over the past year with the injustice, the violence, the pandemic, the politics, the civil unrest. And it's, it's a prayer that's been on my heart especially this week. And so we echo the prayer of the earliest church. That we echo the prayers of God's people that we long for the Lord to come into our midst and make things right. Over the course of the next few months, we are going to be digging into the Gospel of Luke. Here at Bentonville Church of Christ, we typically start the year with some sort of theme, something that, that helps center and guide our hearts, our minds, our ministry. But as we kicked off 2021, with all of its uncertainty and things that are going to be changing over the course of the next year, what we wanted to do was stop and to place our focus on Jesus and then to let that be our center as we look at stories of his life and his ministry. Because we need to be reminded that the center of our faith is that we proclaim Jesus as Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then that changes everything about the way we act and react and interact with God, with ourselves, with one another, and with our neighbors. As Luke begins his gospel, he sets the stage for what he is doing. And Luke tells us he's not an eyewitness to these events. He's a Gentile and a second-generation Christian. He wasn't there seeing Jesus walking alongside of him. And Luke isn't writing the first gospel. He tells us that he has been doing his research. He's read others' accounts. He's spoken to eyewitnesses. He has done his due diligence. And he did all of this in order to send the gospel to Theophilus. Now, we don't know anything about Theophilus. His name means lover of God. But we don't know if that's God or Roman deity. Some have speculated that Theophilus is a, a particular, specific believer in Christ. And Luke is writing to help solidify his faith. Others think that he might be a, a Roman politician. And Luke is presenting the gospel as a defense for the followers of Jesus and the Christian faith. Others think that his name is, is code. It's a stand-in because it means lover of God. So it stands in for all of the believers, those who love God. We simply don't know. All we do know is this, that Theophilus is the recipient of not just this gospel, but both of Luke's letters, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But Luke is using these pages, these stories and sayings and parables and pericopes and the passion story itself to bring people to faith and to prepare the way for the Lord. As we went through our Christmas season, we, we used the gospel of Luke as our basis for our sermon series. So today we open a new chapter in the gospel, a chapter that takes place approximately 18 years after the last story that Luke told of the story of the boy Jesus in the temple. 
and we have a new beginning, and Luke sets our scene for us. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of, of Iturea and Traconis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And I want us to stop here for just a moment. What do you notice in these words? You see, Luke starts his story with the major power players of his day. We have an emperor, a governor, we have kings and rulers and tetrarchs of the territories. And we have the high priests of the temple who are thrown in for good measure. And they ruled from the, the dominant political centers of their day, from Rome, from Sepphoris, from Jerusalem. And all of these individuals that Luke mentions would have put the pursuit of power over everything else. Nothing mattered but the power they had in getting even more. And in fact, one of these individuals even referred to themselves as a god. But although Luke starts with them at the beginning of the story, they aren't the focus. They are a byproduct. They are a byline. Instead, it is John, the son of Zechariah, who is from nowhere and ministering in nowhere, the wilderness. That is where God chooses to start. And Luke begins with the description of John the Baptist's ministry. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into the country all around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But Luke, as well as Mark and Matthew, see John and his ministry both as something that is new and as something ancient, something long awaited. Because Luke continues with these words, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. For Luke, John's arrival is not just something new, but it's the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy. Isaiah, who he is quoting, was a prophet during the 8th century. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, you find that it's broken into three parts. Chapters 1 through 39 tell the story of what's happening in Isaiah's day and the things that will ultimately lead to Israel's downfall. You see, Isaiah is living and ministering in Judah, and he watches as the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And as he watches what happened in the aftermath, he warns that the same thing will happen to Judah and Jerusalem if they continue in their current practices, because God was tired of their idolatry. They would pay lip service to God and offer sacrifices at the temple, but then they would also go and worship the idols and and deities of the kingdoms around. So God was tired of their idolatry. He was tired of their injustice because they abused those who they saw as less important, the poor, the widow, the foreigner, the orphan. They would deprive them of their rights and care. If they could take advantage of the situation, they would. God was tired of their idolatry, their injustice, and their inhumanity because they oppressed and abused even to the point of murder. God says it's all hypocrisy and he's grown weary of it. And so Isaiah says, he prophesied that an exile was going to come. And it wasn't going to be pretty. 
It would come swiftly. It would overturn everything. It would destroy all that they'd ever known, and it would lead their people away into exile in Babylon. And it wasn't going to be a short-term thing. This was a 70-year ordeal. So that's chapters 1 through 39. But the second section is chapter 40 through 55, which tells a story of hope that Israel is about to be released from that exile. And then chapters 56 through 66 speak of God's actions once the people are back home, and they extend into future promises of redemption. And so chapter 40 becomes a transition point between exile and return, between despair and hope. Chapter 40 tells us a change is going to come. In 1964, there was a recording of, by Sam Cooke called A Change is Going to Come, and it was released just shortly after his death. And it was the, one of the title tracks, one of the, the most important songs off of the album, Ain't That Good News. And the song speaks of the struggle he experienced throughout his life, the hard times, uh, his, his own personal experiences in the civil rights movement and injustice, personal tragedy and abuse. It starts with the words, I was born by the river in a little tent, and oh, just like the river, I've been running ever since. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die because I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keeps telling me don't hang around. Then I go to my brother and I say, help me please, but he winds up knocking me back down on my knees. Each verse of that song speaks of hardship and sadness. Each verse is full of, of difficulty but then it's also followed by this chorus. It's been a long time coming, but I know. I know a change going to come. Oh, yes, it will. Ain't that good news? And a change is coming for the people of Israel, and that's what we're told here in chapter 40. You see, they've been a people who have been oppressed and afflicted. They've been a people in waiting, in mourning, in exile, losing hope and losing vision and losing sight of what God is up to. While they have been in despair, though, God is bringing hope. While they have been out of sorts, God is about to bring a change. While they have been distressed and discouraged, God is going to bring them comfort. For that's the first word transitioning from section 1 to section 2 in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. And then it jumps down into verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If I were to summarize Isaiah 40, it would be this, a change is coming, and ain't that good news? And now, standing in this desert 700 years later, Luke tells us that John the Baptist comes proclaiming a change is coming to a people oppressed and afflicted, a people in waiting and mourning and exile, losing hope and losing vision and losing sight of what God is up to. But they think they are oppressed by Rome, but God knows they are oppressed by sin and by the powers at play that are trying to keep them from being the people God is calling them to be. And so God calls John to a ministry and a message. 
First, he says he is to prepare the way for the Lord. John says one is coming who is far greater than he is. John won't even hold a candle. He's not worthy to tie his shoes. John says, I baptize with water, but, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is coming to refine us. I'm just here to pave the way to open the trail. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. For every valley shall be made, filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked ways shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, so that people will see God's glory, God's salvation. I was once blessed to spend a couple of days working in, in trail building. Okay, and blessed might be a relative term here. I had a friend whose Scouting Eagle project was helping rebuild a trail in the, in the city in which we lived. It was in this kind of wilderness area to introduce people to all these different habitats. And so I spent two full weekends and a couple of extra days with this crew of people, and we spent that time digging out rocks and rerouting trails. We were cutting down brush and pulling down old trees. And as you build a trail, you have to grade the path to that perfect degree that will help with runoff but prevent erosion. And there's a whole kind of science to it. We had to dig huge rocks out of the way and then haul them farther up the trail so that we could build steps to help them reach other locations. I had blisters on top of blisters, and honestly, I hurt for days. But we were preparing the way for people to reach their destination, to get to that next step, that next stop, to see the beauty that was there. And John is doing the same from a spiritual perspective because he has come to prepare hearts, minds, and lives for the coming of God so that they can see and experience his glory so they will know his salvation. And so in order to do that, he is baptizing for repentance and the forgiveness of sin. Repentance. At its core, it's a word that means change. A change of heart, a change of identity, a change of direction. It literally talks about going in one way and then turning to go in another. It's saying, I have been doing X. I have been going this way, but now, by God's help and grace, I want to be different. Or maybe it's like saying, I've always seen myself as fill in the blank. But I want God to change that about me. Repentance is change. Now, is it a complete 180 at that moment? Is it gradual? Well, it all depends, honestly. We all have different experiences, but it is a change. And change takes time. But with God's help, by God's grace, through God's power, a change is going to come. So it's repentance and this is a baptism of repentance. Baptism serves as their declaration that they want something to be different. Because there's something just intimately connected here between the act of baptism and the repentance, the change that is happening. There's something important about baptism in the salvation process. This baptism is for forgiveness. Because they are people who recognize their sinfulness. That I am in the wrong. And I cannot make it right. No matter what I do, no matter what I try, it's never going to fix it. And I need my sin to be forgiven by a Savior, by a God who is bigger and greater and grander than that sin. 
And as John looks out at these people as he is preaching and teaching and ministering, these are people who are honestly pursuing God, who realize they want a different life, a different path, a different way of being. Yet all of them also have areas in which God needs to continue working on their hearts so that they can bear the fruit that God desires in their lives. And so John looks out and he specifically addresses three groups of people who are standing in his audience. First, he just looks out at the people. This is the people of the land. These are common, everyday, ordinary people without any real wealth or means or power or privilege. But they want to know what they should do and how they should respond to this message that they hear. And so John tells them to live generously. If you have two tunics, share your extra with someone who has none. Go out of your way to help those in need, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. In essence, love your neighbor as yourself. He looks out at, at the tax collectors, and Luke says in this text, even the tax collectors who had come to be baptized. And John tells them, don't cheat the people. Don't cheat the people. That's the way they had always lived and operated. That's how they made their money. But he says, don't cheat the people. Don't take more than you're allotted. And then he looks out at the soldiers, people who wore the uniform and were armed and had all the power. And John says, don't threaten those you are called to protect. And don't extort them so that you can have more. This isn't a power play. Be content with your wages. The people, the tax collectors, the soldiers, John spoke to them where they are. If you want to repent of your sins, you want to live for God, you want God to have control, well then let God have control of the things that lie at the very center of who you are, of the privilege of your position, the center of your very status and identity. And then Luke calls this good news. That God is bringing the very change you need in your hearts so that you can be more like him. So let God be the king in your life because he is on his way. Our Lord is coming. And we want all people, ourselves and all those around us, to see, to know, to experience God's salvation. So I want you to stop and think for a moment. How might God need to work in your life? How might God want to work in your soul preparing the way for his arrival? You see, all of us are here today for some reason. Unless somebody forced you to come, you are here because there is something that intrigues you about Jesus. Maybe you're in the first stages of your spiritual journey. You're just trying to figure out who Jesus is and what difference he makes and why all of this matters. And we are so glad that you're here today, if that's you. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you have been a Christian for decades. Some of you for more than 50 or 60 years. And we're so glad that you are here too because we can all learn from one another. And then all of us have areas in our hearts and lives where God needs to continue to work. God needs to, to smooth out those rough places. He needs to take those crooked ways and make them straight. He needs to fill in and level out. He needs to shape us to how he wants us and needs us to be. All to prepare the way for his arrival in our hearts and lives, both here and now, 
and in his second coming. Because a core tenet of, of our faith, a core belief of Christianity, is that Jesus is coming again. And so we echo the prayers of the early church and Christians throughout two millennia. Come, our Lord. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. So what changes might God want to see in your life? If you were to ask him, what should I do? Or where do I need to grow? Or where do I need you to come and to smooth things out? What might he say to you? That answer is going to be different for each one of us. Maybe for you, it's, it's to learn to, to listen, to truly listen to others, and especially to those with whom you struggle or you misunderstand. Maybe for you it is to spend less time reading and responding on social media and more time reading and responding to God's Word. Maybe it's to focus less on yourself and learn to love your neighbor more, your coworker, that individual that you don't appreciate or who just gets on your nerves or under your skin. Maybe we need to stop screaming about politics and spend more time sharing the good news. Maybe it's to, to seek help for an addiction to substances or images or your phone or to what others think about you. Maybe it's to be more generous or more trusting or less manipulative or more self-forgiving. Maybe it's to spend more time in prayer. That answer is going to be unique to each one of us. And you and only you and God knows what it needs to be. But I want to encourage you today to jot it down and to make that a resolution and come up with a way to put it into practice. If it's I want to be in God's Word more, then what does that mean to you and how are you going to do that today and tomorrow? Whatever that is for you, make a plan because God wants to prepare your heart, your mind, your life for his arrival so that all of us, every single person on earth, can see his glory and experience his salvation. Today, if you want to know more about that story, if you want to learn more about who Christ is and why this matters, please reach out. You can reach out through needs at bentonvillechurch.com if there's anything going on, or you would just love to have somebody call you and talk with you. Just leave whatever information you would like there. If you want to respond in faith and you want to give your life to Christ or you want to make a renewal of your faith, please reach out through a phone call to the church or through that same email address, and we would love to talk with you about that and help you take those next steps. But may God bless you, may you know him, may he continue to prepare you for his arrival. God bless you today.